0: Our reading this morning comes from 1 John 5, 1 through 6. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to
1: Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to Becky Hefner Camp for playing the organ for us in David's absence and pray for a quick recovery for him. And thank you, Inspirations and Chancel Choir. And so our Easter journey through First John continues. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's well, you know, you know. First John. It's a letter. It's an epistle, it's a sermon, it's a religious tract, <laughs> it's a document, somebody said. That's a debate-ending word, isn't it? Scholars may not all agree on what to call First John, but most all agree that it's Holy Scripture and most would agree that it's one of the most eloquent writings anywhere concerning the love of God for us, concerning our love for one another, and concerning our love for God. And there seems to be a consensus that the document was addressed to a congregation back in its day that has suffered a split due to doctrinal and theological differences. The culprit most frequently blamed is a heresy that we've talked about before these past few weeks, the heresy of Gnosticism. Though sometimes used of any false teaching in the New Testament period, it really speaks to systems of knowledge that were in opposition to Orthodox Christianity in the second and third centuries later after the writings. And it appears that some church members were embarrassed by the lowly origins of the Christian faith. I mean, think about it. Our Savior born in a stable, in a cattle stall, wandered about as a traveling teacher Nowhere to call home, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Died a criminal, a revolutionary's death on a cross. Some folk were embarrassed by the lowly origins of our Christian faith. But it appears that some church members who were embarrassed began to link aspects of the Christian faith with other teachings that were around that were attractive in that day. Greek philosophy, Eastern religions, magic, astrology. The resulting systems called Gnosticism, and they seem very complicated or maybe if not complicated, they seem a little strange to those of us who are living today and still working out this faith in our own lives. Here are a few of the things they talked about. The true God is pure spirit and dwells in the realm of pure light, totally separated from the dark world. We'll talk more about why that's a problem in a moment. The world is evil, they thought, for it's made of matter. And all matter is evil. The true God will have nothing to do with it, for it was created by a lesser God, they said. It was a mistake people in this world are normally made of body and mind, but in a few, they taught, there was a spark of pure spirit. Such spiritual people, they said, need to be rescued from this evil world. So there's a need for a savior. Jesus, who is pure spirit, even though he appears to be body and mind, is the savior who comes from true God and true light to bring knowledge or gnosis of the spiritual realm of light. Therefore, those who have this spark of the Spirit in them can be said to receive the knowledge and be reunited with the true God. And in 1 John, there are references to false teaching about the reality of the humanity of Jesus. And in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, there is much to refute all these erroneous teachings of the Gnostics to show how far off base they were. The whole business of incarnation. The Word became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. That flies in the face of what some of these Gnostic folk believed. John 1.14, the Word, the Word being Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, lived among us, we have seen His glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And if this world is evil, then what are we to make of the Genesis account of creation? And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, and God saw that it was good. And both of these references are from the third day of creation, the only day of creation where God said, and it was good two times. So let me let me chase a rabbit for just a minute because this sort of fascinates me. The third day of creation. In the Jewish tradition, the third day of creation, we would think of that as Tuesday, is the twice good day. Or the twice blessed day. And that's why many, if not most, Orthodox Jewish weddings happen on Tuesday. It's a twice blessed day. It's a twice good day. In John chapter 2, there's a story that begins a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And the story begins, and on the third day, there was a wedding feast. And we spent a lot of time across the years trying to figure that out. The third day after what? Well, not the third day after anything, though every day is the third day after something, but the third day, a Tuesday, the third day of creation. And if I can chase that rabbit just a little bit further, I think officiated in my many years of doing this at one wedding that was on a Tuesday. It didn't work out so well. He was a soldier, he went to Iraq. He met a woman soldier there and forgot that he was married. But uh, that was a, a Tuesday kind of wedding. I don't think what happened had anything to do with it being on, a, being on a Tuesday. But hold that thought. We'll come back to it. But before I started chasing that rabbit, I was trying to say, how can we call evil that which God says is good? Matter, creation, the world. If the world is evil, then why did why does God love the world so much that God sent an only son? For God so loved, so loves still this world. But if all of that be true, then what are we to make of 1 John? Verses, 1 John chapter 5, verses 3b and verse 4. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. So why would we need to conquer something that God said was good? You have to think about that. Something that was worthy of God's love. But who said the world was worthy? Doesn't God love us in our unworthiness And isn't this what the grace of God is all about? In our theology, in Wesleyan theology, we talk about prevenient grace, preventing grace, preventing us from going too far astray. Consider this scenario. The world was created good. Sin or brokenness entered the picture, and the world became a system influenced by evil that which is opposed to the way of God. And even though the world represented opposition, God's love for the world never diminished. God never gave up on this creation of his. So each of us needs to conquer the world according to First John by exercising our faith, by living in obedience to the commandments, and we exercise our faith by believing in the love of God and believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Clifton Black put it like this. He said the outcome of Christians' interconnected acts of faith, love, and obedience is victory all over the world. And this claim draws together two lines of thought throughout 1 John. The world is a deluded realm in need of restoration, and the Christians' present experience of triumph over evil forces that continue to assail. In First John, a life activated by faith, the life we're called to live and conduct it in love, overcomes a faithless and often what seems to us to be a loveless kind of world. And then another scholar, writer, Moody Smith, introduces his thoughts on this matter with a question he said and what does this overcoming or conquest of the world consist Jesus speaks of overcoming the world as he goes to his death John 16 33 I have conquered the world similarly the one who conquers in the book of Revelation seems to refer or allude to martyrdom or the prospect of martyrdom of confessing Christians First John, however, the connotations of the term are less dire. The meaning is related. Those who have conquered the world have risen above it so that it no longer taints or influences or determines the way they live. They have successfully fulfilled this injunction from 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Overcoming the world means living or dying in it Without succumbing to its lure, without being governed by its standards, so conquering the world has nothing to do with military conquest. It has nothing to do with being large and in charge. It doesn't mean that if we've conquered the world that our pictures will grace the pages of a high school or college textbook right along. Alexander the Great's picture and Napoleon and other unforgettable conquerors. That's not the kind of conquest of the world that we're talking about. Conquering the world has nothing to do with rising to the top of the heap in a business or in a financial sense. It would be easy to think that we had conquered the world when in reality the world had only strengthened its grip on us. Conquering the world has nothing to do with athletic prowess, with pushing our bodies to the limits of their abilities where we begin to break world records, nothing to do with our team winning a World Series or any other world championship. So what does conquering the world mean for those who would build a life living and loving God and loving one another? Maybe it means arriving at certain realizations and then acting accordingly. Let me suggest a few that came to my heart, my mind, and I think maybe you will have others as well. Conquering the world means realizing that the world does not have the last word. The world can be for all folks some of the time, and for some folks all of the time, a dark and dreary and lonely and frightening and broken kind of place. A place where folks live in a shadow land, fluctuating or floating back and forth between anger and fear and despair. Some of you may be familiar with the contemporary Christian group. I haven't heard from them recently. I haven't paid as close of attention as I should have. But Casting Crowns was um, a well-known group. They were based, I believe, out of the Eagles Landing Baptist Church down around Stockbridge in McDonough, Georgia. But one of their songs that I, that I think about from time to time and that came to mind here when we were talking about overcoming the world and how it can be such a tough place for so many people. And let me share just a little bit of that with you. And you will recognize these lyrics. I think she is running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. She is trying, but the canyon's ever widening in the depths of her cold heart. So she sets out on another misadventure just to find she's another two years older and she's three more steps behind does anybody hear her can anybody see or does anybody even know she's going down today under the shadow of our steeple with all the lost and lonely people searching for the hope that's tucked away in you and me does anybody hear her can anybody see She's yearning for shelter and affection that she never found at home. She is searching for a hero to ride in to ride in and save the day and in walks her Prince Charming and he knows just what to say. Momentary lapse of reason and she gives herself away. If judgment looms under every steeple, if lofty glances from lofty people can't see past her scarlet letter, We've never even met her. Do we know her? Conquering the world means realizing that the world makes promises it cannot keep. The world says if we pile up enough stuff and enough resources, we're going to be happy. The world says that if we can only achieve a certain level of face and name recognition... Then everything's gonna be all right, the world says. Can you think of any other frequently broken promises? Conquering the world means realizing we cannot conquer the world by ourselves. The world will tell us that we are rocks and we are islands, that we can use other folks for our own gain or pleasure, but we don't really need anyone else. We'll always be able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps if we can afford the boots, won't we? Sooner or later, life or death, we'll expose that false promise for all that it is. Have a thought of what else conquering the world might mean. Maybe something else going on in your world. Something peculiar to your own life situation right now. What does it mean? to overcome the world. Earlier I said that we conquer the world by obeying the commandments of God and by exercising our faith. And we exercise our faith by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and by learning to love God. A few years ago, retired bishop and editor of the Upper Room, Reuben Job, and he he died just, well, not too long ago, a few years ago. But he wrote a little book. He wrote many books, but he wrote a little book called Three Simple Rules. And you may have read it. You may have used it in your Sunday school class. You may have stumbled across it somewhere else. Three Simple Rules, a Wesleyan way of living. And in that book, he talks about John Wesley's general rules, three in particular. And those rules are number one, do no harm. Number two, do good. And number three, stay in love with God by keeping the ordinances of God, all the ordinances of God. Those questions are asked of us when we are ordained, and they are asked of of you in many ways, I'm sure, and, and maybe as you did the study, you answered those questions. Stay in love with God by attending upon all the ordinances of God. Reuben Job says that ordinance is a strange word to our ears, but to John Wesley, He described the practices that kept the conversation going, that kept the relationship strong between God and human beings. And Wesley talked about the importance of worship, public worship, searching the scriptures, Bible study, groups together, confessing and believing and strengthening one another. And Wesley saw these disciplines as essential if we are to know God in Jesus Christ, and learn to love him. He saw that the practice, the consistent practice of these spiritual disciplines for those who sought to follow Christ kept us in touch with the love of Christ and the power of God. And we can't do it if we're disconnected. We must stay in love with God if we are ever to conquer the world that threatens to undo us and oppress us. Do we love God? We talk a lot about God's love for us. In all honesty, do we love our God? For Christians, Sunday, the first day of the week, is a great time to think about that, to answer that question while we're gathered together online or in this place. A great day, the first day of the week. And if we don't do it on Sunday, maybe we take a clue from our spiritual ancestors and we pick another day, another time in the week to stay in touch with God. Maybe Tuesday, maybe the twice-blessed day. There's almost always a good reason somewhere for chasing rabbits. Amen.